everybody, it's the Bucket Cast, hosted by yours truly, BucketReviews.com, film critic and podcaster, yes, podcaster, Danny Baldwin, and joining me on the show is your co-host, Michael. I survived Repo Men Lester. You were more brave than I, Michael, in fairing the multiplex this weekend? Well, I, 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 I could handle Repo Men, I just don't want to imagine what the bounty hunter must have been like you know diary of a wimpy kid did better than the mall i should have gone like, to that what, what the hell it's like i guess i'm tuned out I'm, i guess it was you know a kid's bestseller or something did better than percy jackson and the olympians oh i see the books at like barnes and noble you know there's like 50 billion of them or something like that yeah my brother has a facebook photo of him holding up that book and likening it to himself i i I don't quite get it but apparently it's popular with the youngsters and uh, good for that movie and it's directed by hotel for dogs director thor frudenthal or something like that anybody whose name is thor is cool in my book and i actually liked hotel for dogs kind of not the least of which because of Emma Roberts. But how was Repo Man? Uh, not good? No. I hear it was terrible. Uh, it, it had like the interesting premise going. And then third act, it just dies. Where... But it, you liked it for two acts? I mean, I'm No, sure no, not two was... acts. I'm just saying it had an interesting premise. But third act, it was like... It, it I heard... was like dead. Not even dead in the water. It was just gone. Yeah. I heard Liev Schreiber is particularly horny and bad or something like oh that. yeah he just keeps kind of you know going with this whole salesman attitude the whole movie and i'm like okay i get what you're doing but it doesn't work well i fared much better i stayed away from the multiplex this weekend and i watched all 13 episodes of breaking bad season two on blu-ray and it was just a brian cranston orgasm for me i just ah such a good show. Yeah, I, I've been there too. It wasn't with uh, Breaking Bad. It was Battlestar Galactica. I just watched an entire season. Like, but I feel like I Battlestar Galactica is overexposed. And Breaking Bad is starting to get into that no, territory. No, no, no. I know, I know. But I'm just saying, like, I've gotten so into a show that I've watched an entire season yeah. within the confines of one weekend. Yeah. Before oh, finals. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> that's always a great time to do it. But first up, we're going to... Well, actually, I should mention, at the end of the show today, we're going to have an early review. We teased it last week of what film, Michael? Hot Tub Time Machine. Yeah, there's the perky. You're a lot perkier during this introduction than you have been in past. Are you practicing a little bit? I was you know, stuck at work for seven and a half hours, so... Okay, well, let's let the energy release. Okay. And... First up, we have a review of a new documentary. It's playing in Los Angeles right now as we speak at the Lemley Sunset 5 in West Hollywood and opens here in San Diego on Friday, I guess. And in San Diego, you can go to a Q&A, as it is, with the director and star of the movie, Kimberly Reed, and her brother, oh, what's his name? Mark? No, not the not the crazy one. I mean the Todd, Todd, the gay one. The one that lives in San Diego? <laughs> yes, the one that lives in San Diego. So you can go and talk to them. It's probably a great opportunity at the Ken Cinema uh, down in Kensington there, which is a great theater. You should just all join. And if you live in another part of the country, go to prodigalsonsfilm.com and find out when it's playing uh, near you. So Prodigal Sons is essentially about Kimberly Reed, who is a transsexual, had a sex change after high school, being the star football player, a guy, of course, and comes back to Podunk, Montana, years and years later, as a female. And it's kind of surprising, Michael, because you would think, I actually think 
rather than like a, a destigmatization of transsexual stereotypes, this is almost even more a destigmatization of small conservative town who, you know, really don't ever blow up at, at Kimberly for her uh, change. No, I, I was really surprised. Everyone just rolled along with it like it was nothing new. And I mean, Montana is hardly Arkansas in terms of political values, but it really, it's really surprising when she comes back and it's not a shock at all. But more shocking is what's going on with her brother, Mark, who had a head injury and even before then was, uh, had a head injury in his early 20s and even before then was, was kind of off and had some mental problems and he is you know having a very hard time and even goes to prison later in the movie i guess jail whatever you know uh <laughs> jail yeah and and there's this one frantic blow up between him and and we find riffs in the family uh with she and him and she was basically off becoming a woman during the time that he was having the hardest time uh with his head injury and having multiple surgeries and it all unravels, and uh, somewhere in the middle of that, we find out that he is the grandson of... He, he was, of course, adopted. Uh, he's the grandson of who? Orson Welles. And? and Rita Hayworth. That's not a bad uh, geological... No. Geologi geo genealogical. You really, you really helped me with these words, Michael. Uh, that's not a bad genealogical uh, there you go. tree to be on. Uh, but he's uh, definitely having some problems. And it's just, it's just kind of a portrait of a family. And it's fascinating to watch. It goes in some unexpected directions, not the least of which is when they visit the uh, family, uh, Mark's real family in Croatia... And this this goes to some very interesting places, none of which you will see coming. And I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to give it a, a three out of four. I mean, as I was telling Danny, I had a kind of tough time trying to figure out, you know, what the documentary is about. But in the in the long run, it's really just about Kimberly Reed's story. You know? Yeah, it's just a, kind of an autobiographical portrait trying to find out what happened with her family, which she's kind of estranged from for the most part aside from this brother todd who stays mostly out of the picture although maybe you can find out a little bit more about him at the q a mm -hmm. and you know the q a is worth going to maybe we should interview this woman because i really want to find out what happened with mark i mean i think that's a good sign of a documentary is that you want to find out what happened with the character. i was expecting uh truth be told at the end you know like the black screen and the white writing pops up saying this is what's happened since then yeah and i didn't get that i was like wait although what? i like that it doesn't do that. no no but you i was know? expecting some kind of you know this is what's happened since yeah the movie is very low-key and even though it plays to some narrative conventions for documentary i mean reed's a first-time filmmaker so she's definitely not a pro at this and you know there's some kind of cheesy voiceover in which she makes realizations that didn't really work for me but mostly she stays away from these conventions keeps it low-key and doesn't go for those easy payoffs that we'd expect you know you can just picture a uh more desperate documentarian trying to find something good that happened in Mark's life and putting it up on the screen at the end, as you said. And and this doesn't do that. It's uh, it, it tells it how it is. It's a stirring story, but not, not totally unbelievable. I mean, it definitely seems authentic. 
definitely seems real, but it is in many ways stranger than fiction, as we were talking about with My Enemy's Enemy last week, although I believe this to be a stronger doc. I give it three buckets out of four as well, and, you know, go see it. Yes. Enjoy it. Prodigal Sons Film dot com is where you can check out the play dates for that and if you you know if you go to the q a you know tell us what you hear you know we want to know what's up mm-hmm. michael why don't you toss out your email so they can do that <laughs> uh well you can reach me at uh michael at webmail.com no oh bucket reviews no it's a bucket reviews i'm sorry <laughs> michael at bucket reviews.com yes and you can contact me at webmaster i think that's what he was confusing webmaster at bucket reviews.com and also, you can tweet me at Bucket Reviews. But moving on, today actually is the seventh anniversary of the Iraq War. Whoopee! Yes. Isn't that just great? See, now I've lost that, that moxie that I had earlier. Well, see, that was appropriate because I was saying, like, whoopee to be ironic and you could be the devastated, serious one, you know, <sighs> whose who's, like, stepbrother died in Afghanistan. And yeah, no. he's shaking his head. He... He can't fictionalize for the sake of the show. No. <laughs> <laughs> nor should nor should he. But uh, I play the dramatic one here, folks. Uh, and, you know, we were going to do favorite Iraq war movies, right? And, yeah. And I think you have a very clear favorite Iraq war movie. But it's not even an Iraq war movie. Oh, I thought you. I was. I thought the Hurt Locker would be. Kind oh of, well, well I, yeah. I, know, I, I like the Hurt Locker, but you the know. Hurt Locker is really, really overexposed, and I don't think we need to say anything about more. It may be the definitive Iraq movie for some time, but uh, who cares right now? Because it won its awards, and we don't need to talk about that. The other movie, uh, which is not really an Iraq movie, is is what the Given Kingdom. It, yeah. I, I really like the Kingdom, and I forgot that it was it's in Saudi it's Arabia. It's essentially about Iraq, but it takes place in Saudi Arabia, and you know, so we couldn't do that. So uh, that pretty much took away the two favorites about the Iraq War. So, <laughs> so and and even doing favorites about the Iraq War seems kind of like uh, sickening. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean these. <laughs> These movies, while uh, certainly our favorites are, are definitely severe in tone, so we're going to do something different and feature two movies that were kind of overlooked about the Iraq War. I mean, we've seen so many War on Terror pictures like Lions for Lambs and Rendition and things, none of which do very well at the box office, but that are very didactic, sensational, political movies, and they get a lot of media attention. I mean, remember Brian De Palma's Redacted, which did take place in Iraq, uh, that uh, essentially was like, you know, the rape of, it was kind of this fictional doc about the rape of, uh, you know, Iraqi girls by American soldiers. And it generated a lot of controversy, but nobody saw it. So we're going to, on a similar token, do two movies that were basically ignored at the multiplex, but have to do with Iraq. The first one's called The Lucky Ones. And Michael, why don't you tell us about that one? Uh, the Lucky Ones is actually, you know, starting, it starts the movie off with, basically three people coming back from the war, their term in Iraq for actually they're all coming off of us a, a sick leave they're going on a th- uh, sick leave for 30 days and it's basically about their journey across you know the United States uh, they basically journey. you know in the way that only a road movie could yeah. uh, get hung up and they can't get a flight from the east coast to Las Vegas so they all somehow end up in one rented vehicle and oh well, let's not bury the lead. They're but played it, it by... delves into the you know the very intensely personal stories that they all have and their 
own yeah. goals and missions and so forth. They're played by Tim Robbins, Rachel McAdams, and Michael Pena. And I don't think the movie even grossed a million dollars, but that's quite a cast. Yeah. And uh, the movie steers away from politics mostly, and it's just this road movie story, which is surprising. Maybe it's why why people were scared off is because Tim Robbins, who's been so political about the Iraq War, uh, plays a lead role. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's not that at all. In fact, it shows Americans on the whole as genuinely appreciative of, of uh, the soldiers in Iraq. And even they score a car rental because the, the car rental guy uh, likes them because they're coming home there, there was only really one occurrence of like a negative reaction to them being over there being the dweeb college kids um they weren't all college kids no 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 it's two it was two and the people at the party yeah oh yeah but those seem to be very you know realistic portrayals that's like it almost expected i could see yeah and the movie while contrived i mean the movie's just kind of like whimsical uh it goes through this whole theme of the lucky ones and they keep uh, no matter how much tragedy is thrown at them, they're all injured in some way. Uh, Tim Robbins' character's uh, wife basically leaves him early on in the movie. Michael Pena doesn't know if he can uh, get hard because of the injury he's had. And uh, Rachel McAdams is is uh, finding one of her, or the man she kind of developed a relationship uh, finding his family and he's dead and uh, despite all the punches that are thrown at them they seem to survive and come back stronger i don't want to make it seem all melodramatic that way uh but it plays with it on whimsy and i think the whimsy worked some people call it way too contrived no i think it, it works just fine you know it fits so I would recommend uh, check out the Lucky Ones. In fact, it's one of those ones where it's you know it was so ignored that you can find the DVD for like a buck online. And, it, it, and it, I almost say it's like it's so hardly it's hardly about Iraq. Iraq is so small. It's like bookends it. Yeah, but it, it's really you know authentic to the coming home experience. I think and not so mm-hmm. depressing like the other Iraq War movies. And yeah. yet paints a very accurate portrait. I think it's so not I, depressing like. Uh, Harsh Times, the next one we're going to talk about. Yeah, or Brothers, where, you know, Tobey <laughs> Maguire comes back and is essentially a, a, you know, a ball of uh, PTSD, as Christian Bale is in Harsh Times. So how about Harsh Times, Michael? Yeah, Harsh Times is Christian Bale's character has recently come back from, you know, serving as a ranger in Iraq and basically how he's trying to readjust to civilian life. Can't, you know, he's got a Mexican girlfriend that he's trying to marry and get in across. Mexico, yeah. yeah, in Mexico, trying to get her across the border, you know, make her a legal resident, you know, trying to be, join the LAPD. Despite the fact that he's totally wounded by his psychological injuries well, in Iraq and totally is, not fit to be a police officer on is, many levels. Yeah, well, I, I, the, the movie basically follows he and Freddie Rodriguez's character as they, uh, do nothing around LA except smoke pot and uh, drug dealers and and find guns and, you know, uh, engage in all kinds of bad things throughout the course of, well, about two days. And it's fascinating as Bale kind of goes in, you know, this movie doesn't, this movie on the other hand is not trying to be an accurate statement about Iraq. It just uses Iraq as a backdrop. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Christian Bale just delves into this insanity, this kind of PTSD-driven insanity, and it it gets worse and worse. And I should mention the movie is written and directed by David Ayer, who was the writer on Training Day, 
and it's very similar territory to that. Um, I think, Michael, the movie goes off the rails in the last third or so when Freddie Rodriguez and Christian Bale and another friend go to Mexico and he just basically loses it. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. It was it was going pretty strong. First act was really good. Second act was pretty good too, but yeah, it and was I, itself. I think we seem to not have use Iraq as a proper narrative device like filmmakers don't know when, when when that crosses over into offensive territory when you play something like this and you know Christian Bale is a uh, just crazy guy essentially because of the war and they don't know whether that's making too much of a statement and sometimes it does make too much of a statement and it's it just becomes a political movie and it seems like not enough filmmakers are walking that rope. And I will say that throughout, I never had a problem with that. I thought it was a good use of the template and a very kind of modern template for the uh, story. Well, I mean, I think the you know, the biggest thing about the whole movie, despite the third act you yeah. know, falling apart, Christian Bale does like an amazing job. Unbelievable. Um, I mean, I think that like the thing that struck me the most is, how he would switch between like these two different people. Yeah. Like when Department of Homeland Security calls, he's back in like the military mindset. Yeah, like, he's considered for a job with the, the Department of Homeland Security based on his LAPD app and uh, they go from there. But yes, you're right. And it's he's genuinely scary and you can believe him in this role. I mean, so many lesser skilled actors couldn't pull it off. It would just seem hammy and like this guy would never be... Uh, a, a competent army ranger in the first place or he'd just be too far gone and you know would be in a an army mandated therapist and but it doesn't do any of that it's it's fascinating to watch and i give the movie a light recommendation and i think people should seek it out on dvd because it's pretty good yeah definitely okay next up we're gonna continue our Corey Haim tribute and we're gonna be featuring a movie i think well maybe Corey Haim's first movie i don't know well, definitely did it as a young, early young kid uh, in 1986. It's Lucas, uh, directed by David Seltzer. Corey Haim plays the title character, who is a 13-year-old kid, but he's in high school. Actually, 14, I think. Yeah. 14. Yeah, and he's in high school, and uh, he works uh, for a gardener, and he's poor, actually lives in a trailer park. But he meets a girl who's playing tennis in his misadventures one day named Maggie, who is an older high schooler, and they hit it off. She's played by Carrie Green, and the movie just goes on and on about this, you know, friendship between Lucas and Maggie, and Maggie essentially starts to develop some romantic tension with Cappy, who's played by Charlie Sheen, who's the only nice guy uh, to Lucas in high school. He's a big football player. And Lucas, who's, uh, you know, a younger guy, he's an, an accelerated, uh, as the as Corey Haim says in the movie, uh, he's the only nice guy to him. And he begins to fall for Maggie. And that, of course, leads Lucas to be angry and has he has his own idealizations about his new friend being his girlfriend. And it's charming. It's interesting. And I think it has a strange pulse on what it was what it's like to be a nerd at that age and kind of an outsider and i i really kind of related to lucas i think um i i yeah i was really surprised how the film played out you know him being friends with cappy 
Cappy defending him, I was just like, wait, I was expecting stereotypical 80s. It is kind of stereotypical 80s in its presentation. In presentation, oh yeah. Style-wise, I mean, the music, again, we get that synthesizer in the background, <laughs> trumping a lot. But it's really refreshing. I mean, this is, I would say this is still a great kids movie today, teen movie today. And damn, I gotta say. I wish I could be in a showing of The Fly with like with like 300 teenagers who don't say a word during the movie, despite the fact we know they're obnoxious. I and mean, no cell phones. And they have very polite uh, makeout sessions. They're they're very courteous to other moviegoers. <laughs> and damn, I wish that could have been me. But uh, hey, that that theater still exists. I looked it up on Google Maps. In fact, so. Maybe we'll take a road trip to Illinois and check that one out or something. Yeah, I'll let you do that. You can, you can write up a review. I sense your energy's dying now, Michael. You, you're, you're taking it all away from me, Danny. I'm you're, taking it? It's yeah, like you're, you're ebb just, and flow? Yeah, it's ebb and flow. You're so hyperactive now, I have to... What are your thoughts on Lucas? Give me um, your thoughts. I, I feel it, you know it's a really strong movie. I was like really surprised by... Um, the writing, I actually tend to agree with what uh, Ebert says, giving it four stars. Yeah, I mean, it's surprisingly realistic, and I mean, given the plot. it's uh, It really has a pulse, I think, on the, the whole high school experience. But it's not like he's trying to, you know, get this girl who is, like, completely removed from him. You know, they're, they're friends, but that's all she sees him as. And but he, his own idealizations about her are a very accurate portrait. Oh, no, no, no. But it's not like how we see a lot of these movies. Like, I'm trying to get the, like the best girl in school and she pays no attention to me. It's quite different from that. And Yeah, modern movies could take note from how Lucas uh, portrays mm-hmm. the high school experience. And, you know, aside from the the very hokey ending scene, I think it does quite yeah. well. Which uh, all I'll say is uh, uh, clapping. Uh, Lucas becomes a member of the football team in an attempt to win Maggie over and let's just say it goes into some interesting territory but kind of conventional and uh, uninteresting at the same time and as I think about the only uh, another thing that I found to have uh, an issue with was Winona Ryder it's just like she's so just not there I actually love Winona Ryder no she was fine it was just like she would just appear just to forward the plot a little bit more yeah but I think she's necessary because I think that especially if you're that age watching this movie you want to know that even though this super hot Maggie girl who's totally out of your league and older than you is ignoring you there is an equally attract now you know Winona Ryder was very young at this time but let's get into 14 year old mode an equally attractive young lady lusting for you all the more and I think that's why the role works okay I'll, I'll accept that answer <laughs> okay uh well let's move on to more adult things well maybe less adult really but <laughs> it's up in the air but, but you know more adult in terms of language and things uh hot tub time machine this is our early review i'm sure you've heard about it michael uh do we even need to describe the plot no i think the trailer tells you everything you need or, to know or the title yeah the title yeah I, I mean i didn't want to insult anyone but it's about a hot tub time machine did you like it i liked it it was good 
You want to expand on this? I feel like you're not yeah, expanding. You, just, you asked me a very basic question. I answered your very basic question. Well, why don't you give us your, like, talk to me as if we just got out of the movie again. <laughs> Tell me what you're feeling in this moment. I, I feel like I should be laying down on the couch and you're asking about my life, but okay. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the Hot Tub Time Machine, like, you have Rob Cordroy, who's just, I think this powerhouse of... He was funny. And, I th- well, actually, I only thought John Cusack was, like, the low point of that. Yeah, that John, John cl- Cusack, like, seems... Of that group. Although Clark Duke is kind of just there, too. Basically, there's four guys. Uh, Craig Robinson, Rob Cordroy, Clark Duke, and John Cusack. And Cusack and Duke just kind of take the back seat to Robinson and Cordroy, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. Cusack seems to have gotten the exec producer credit on this, and he just kind of appeared there. He's like the biggest star Showed in up. the movie. <laughs> Uh, but he's really, really not the high point, although he's certainly not bad. But these four guys, after – I don't want to give it away because it is a brilliant first scene. It may be I my just, favorite scene. They're, the they're going through some tough times. Going through some tough times. So they head out to a resort that they uh, went to in younger years. And they stay in their same room and they end up going in the hot tub, which turns into uh, the titular – a time machine uh, and they're back in the 80s uh when they first visited yeah, essentially and they look like themselves but not to themselves due to various scientific processes <laughs> uh and hilarity ensues uh but you found it funny good uh i think i mean like at very least it's worth you know like watching it on dvd no but but but, but i still say it is a movie to see in the theater with an audience. Yes, and that's what I'm getting to, is that this is a movie that's funny, yeah, but it's mostly empty. And I think, like the last summer's The Hangover, it just is not going to work without that big audience reinforcing all of your laughter and enjoying it as a communal experience. I think that on DVD, this one could kind of fall flat, except for the aforementioned opening scene, and some really hilarious scenes and invo- reoccurring scenes involving Crispin Glover of all people coming out of the woodwork. Uh, that maybe that's what I'm thinking about because that's like when I try to remember what I liked about that movie. It's all the scenes with Crispin Glover. Yeah, I got a little like Crispin Glover is kind of interesting because it's very funny at first, but then it's not so funny. But then it gets so repetitive that you have to laugh at it. And you'll know what we mean when you uh, see it, but I won't give it away because this movie would be nothing if not for a few successful jokes. I came out of it and I told you, Michael, when we got out that I uh, essentially liked it. I'm kind of revising my opinion because as more time moves on, and and this has only been, what, five days? Yeah, five days. Uh, Almost to the T. I just seem to forget more of it and it just seems like I think that a big part of a comedy if it's just going to be a balls to the walls straight joke comedy is that you can recite the punchlines and gags for weeks to come and that's integral to its success and its experience and I'm not finding that here at all. No, I mean, I had to refer to my notes to remember some specific parts of the movie. You know, like I said, Crispin Glover is the one that stands out. And that's really not something you can say as yeah. a joke. Let's see. I have my notes here. I'm going to look The for, the, the uh, one that stands out the most to me is that Tiger, don't text those chicks. 
Yeah, that was pretty good. Although, uh, but out, outside the movie, it doesn't make so much. Oh, sense. preventing Miley Cyrus was another good one. I wrote down some lines I like, and it does have some nice quips, and it's mostly funny. It's the problem I have, and you know I hate to compare. But she's out of my league. It's just miles beyond this in terms of its heft and its ability to build to a joke. I mean, I will never forget the premature ejaculation scene in She's Out of My League, the pubic hair scene in She's Out of My League. As far as raunchy comedies go, She's Out of My League does not have as many jokes, but I think it's far more memorable and has a lot more other redeeming qualities, and I'm just not seeing that here. So I gave it two and a half out of four. I gave it three. So you're sticking to it. You think? I, I mean, we, I, I I think it's enjoyable. We were, I mean, maybe we'll come back and I can watch it on DVD by myself yeah, and see what I think. I mean, we were both laughing quite a bit. I mean, it's funny enough. It's a good experience, and a lot of people would just say, "Danny, ease up and uh, just <laughs> enjoy it for what it is." And it's good you forgot about it because most of your, uh, uh, you know, wildly depressing movies that you watch are uh, memorable for a, a bad reason. Uh, to which I just say F off, but, you know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> you're not very talkative today, Michael. You didn't say that at the beginning of the show. I know. But I, see, the I, thing I is, like... I told you this before. I let you do your spiel, and then I come back in. And you were still going. I feel like there's not enough of you coming in. Got anything else to say about the Hot Tub Time Machine? No? No, I, I'd still say, you know, go see it. Um, I, I still think it's worth viewing, you know. Quick and to the point, people. That's the name of the game. That's what your name's going to be next time. Name Michael, of the game. Michael Quick and to the point, Lester. Yeah. Uh, so that's all we got, folks. This has been the Bucket Cast. I'm Danny Baldwin. And I'm Michael Lester. Saying peace out. We're on the front line. I get handed down the news. We're on the front line.